Hey, Heal community, welcome to season six. If you're listening for the first time, welcome. If you're back for more, thank you for continuing to support this project and being a part of it. If you're not yet a member of my email list, go to sarahmarshallnd.com to register. That will continue to be the hub of all new releases of podcasts, articles, and updates. As this project goes into its third year this June, I'm building a team to expand into more ways to support you on your healing journey, and my email list is the best way to do that. Go to my website, sarahmarshallnd.com to sign up. Welcome to Heal. On today's episode, Dr. Marlene Merritt, certified specialist in mold illnesses, illuminates a mostly hidden microscopic world of the origins of chronic inflammatory issues that often go un- or misdiagnosed. Mold sickness is way more common than pretty much anyone but people like Marlene think and can be significant and long-lasting detriment to people's health. I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Marshall. Marlene Merritt, I am so pumped for this episode and I'm just super, super, super grateful for you to be here and share your 21 years of experience and wealth of knowledge with me and with my audience. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be here. Yeah. So who you are for me is a mold genius. <laughs> and and Wow, you, that's, that's a title. <laughs> I know. And you know, you don't have to live all the way into that, but like, I mean, you rocked my world when I had the privilege of meeting you through a seminar And when I was kind of at the very end stages of dealing with my chronic fatigue syndrome, and I was really looking at like, what the heck am I missing? Where do I need to look next? And I'd even been studying mold and mold related illnesses the last couple of years, probably no accident that that came into my life as a doctor. And through your conversations around moldy to healthy, which we'll talk more about this whole episode you really connected some dots for me of places to be looking and dealing with maybe a, I don't know exactly the best way to put it, but like another perspective that I was missing around what might be going on with me personally for chronic fatigue syndrome. And I've seen it in some of my clients. And this is a whole area that I think doesn't, most people don't even know about it. It's like this un- known disease or syndrome that actually could be running in the foreground or the background for a lot of people. Yeah, I actually, the analogy I use is is that, you know, 20 years ago, people didn't really know anything about gluten intolerance. And there was all these like snarky comments about like, oh, it's just a fad, blah, blah, blah. And, but then it turns out like in the last 20 years, there's a ton of research about this and it's uh, now accepted to be completely valid. It isn't just celiac disease. There's also, you know, non- celiac gluten sensitivity. And so, and people have often tried this and some have noticed that it's made a huge difference for them. So this is kind of the same realm, I think. I think we've, we have just started getting some momentum on having people start to say like, oh yeah, I've heard mold isn't that good. And I think really in the next 20 years, we're going to see people get really clear on what damage, uh, like how to look for damage in a house, how to recognize being ill, like we'll have more practitioners who will recognize it faster because what you were saying about chronic fatigue, that's the perfect example where, you know, people who have chronic fatigue and excuse me, and fibromyalgia is the other one. Yeah. Because people spend, you know, years getting a diagnosis and then like big whoop, it doesn't actually do anything like, okay, well now you've just sort of basically described my symptoms, symptoms. I have chronic fatigue, mm-hmm. <laughs> right. And then there's nothing to be done about it. Yeah. Right. And then people have to suffer and that, that doesn't make sense. But in, the world of biotoxin illness, of which mold is one of them, chronic fatigue and fibromyalgia is so related to this that if we see a, a diagnosis of that, we are 100% sure that that's related mm-hmm. to SARS, that that's what's driven by that, this chronic inflammatory response syndrome. Yeah, yeah. And you know, one of the things that always struck me in, you know, my undergraduate was in professional chemistry. So I got a degree in chemistry and then I mm. went to naturopathic school And I, and I did, (laughs) admittedly, I really thought I was going to like the Hogwarts of medicine. (laughs) Turns out that wasn't the case. Like it was far more conventional medicine than I had any Mm -hmm. idea. Now in the long run, looking back, I'm really grateful for that foundation. But uh, at the time I was like, what do you mean? I have to learn all of these, (laughs) but I remember actually we were in our clinical diagnosis courses. So the entire 
first two years of medical school was these intensive, you know, nine hours a week, three sessions of three hours, you know, each courses on how do you diagnose disease? And it was all from conventional medical philosophy. And there would be this disease type called idiopathic. <laughs> which, which I always still, make a joke. We're, I know. We're idiots because we can't figure it out. Right. Idiopathic <laughs> is literally considered a reasonable conclusion to come to, which literally in Latin means diseases of unknown origin. We don't know why you have it. We just know you do. But the weird thing is, is the way that we actually interact with idiopathic diseases is like they have no cause. There isn't one. I know. Like they just popped up out of nowhere and like, oh, poor person. Right. Like out of, literally it's like being struck by lightning. Oh, wham, you have this end chronic fatigue and fibromyalgia. And, you know, I've even, I've had three cases now of men and you've probably had hundreds. My small boutique practice, I don't work with as many people, but I've had three cases of men where they came to me with four to five years plus of chronic sinus infections. And they had been put on antibiotic after antibiotic after antibiotic. And that's starting to shut the rest of their gut and their immune system down. They deal with, you know, fatigue and brain fog. And, and the whole thing was just like, oh yeah, you just have chronic sinus infections. Well, now I know to go sleuthing for mold and this chronic inflammatory response syndrome to actually rule. And with actually all three of them, it was mold. And when we cleaned that out and we worked it, I literally was like the light bulbs turned back on and they went back to their high functioning lives and they had seen dozens of medical doctors. Yeah. Yeah. The standard person has seen 15 to 20 people before they um, come to us and they find out that like, maybe this is what they have is maybe this biotoxin. So the term is biotoxin illness because in this same kind of umbrella term of chronic inflammatory response syndrome, so CIRS, so we, we say that SIRS, that umbrella term of biotoxin illnesses includes like Lyme. So when people get bit by a Lyme tick, you know, some people recover like no problem and other people are like sick for like 10 years. It's the same thing actually. Mm. Like that there's this, this immune reaction that occurs where a chronic inflammatory response happens when the genetically susceptible people can't clear the toxins present. So I, I just talk about mold a lot because it's probably 80% of what I see. And, you know, the EPA estimates that 50, 50% of buildings are water damaged, which is like an insanity amount. Yeah. So, so I think that when to the genetically susceptible amount of people is 25%. So 25% of people have the genes that make them susceptible. This doesn't mean the genes have been turned on. It just means they have the genes. Like I have the genes, but I don't have them turned on. I don't know how I don't have them turned on because I've definitely lived in, in places that had water damage, yeah. but somehow I've avoided that so far, but my patients have not, right? So they have this genetic susceptibility. So a certain percentage of them then get this chronic illness. So it, you know, they get diagnosed like chronic fatigue or fibromyalgia or, you know, or the, the biggest trap is kind of like what you said about the diagnosis learning about diagnosis in the conventional way yeah. is like in our, the way our medical system is, is, you have a specialty, right? So when the person goes, let's say they have a sleep problem and they see the sleep specialist, like that's all he's really looking for. He's not looking to see that they've got hormonal problems or you see a hormone person and they're like, oh, you definitely need to be on testosterone. And so they manage that, but then they don't see like, oh, this person has, you know, fatigue issues. They've got brain issues. They've got like all this other stuff happening because they're in their lane. Yeah. And that's that's the problem. I'm really glad you said that about hormones. Cause like, I've never been a big proponent of bioidentical hormones and, mm-hmm. and it's for several reasons. One is this, cause it's just not the root cause. You right. know, if the endocrine system is starting to break down, this is the way that I was taught and how I think about it is that you've got core organ systems in your body that are like making you live your heart, your mm-hmm. lungs, your gut. It's like how you're alive. Then there's regulatory systems in your body. Mm-hmm. The immune system regulates you're, you know, dealing with foreign agents and, and infectious agents and the cardiac system is both a core and a regulatory system, it turns out. And then there's the endocrine system, which is basically doing its damnedest job to keep you in balance inside of this insanely varied, stressful world. And, you know, at a level, I'm clear that human beings or homo sapiens genetically have had stresses throughout their entire evolution. And there's some 
we could boil several things down, but one of the big ones is there just was more consistency and routine to our lives mm-hmm. until somewhere between 150 and 400 years ago, depending on how you want to draw the line. Mm-hmm. The amount of variation day to day of of what we deal with, the stresses we deal with, what we're exposed to is just astronomically higher than it has been. And so mm-hmm. our, our endocrine system is like, I can't keep up. It's just freaking out under that. But then what'll happen is somebody will see that in their endocrine system and then treat them with bioidentical hormones. And it's like putting black tape over your check engine light. Yes. Yes. I mean, the light's <laughs> gone, but we yeah, have dealt better. with what's going on underneath. And what happens for some of my clients is when you add testosterone or estrogen in particular, you're actually like putting jet fuel into a, the engine of a crashing plane. It just crashes faster. Mm-hmm. And so like, that's something that I've actually started to see. I actually have another client I can think of in this case where in her forties, she had brain fog and fatigue and they put her on HRT. This was even before bioidenticals mm-hmm. and likely she was probably dealing with something much more similar to Sears when I look at the rest of her picture and, and how sensitive she is to histamine and how sensitive she can't eat vinegar. She can't touch yeah. sugar. She can't like, there's a whole bunch of things that kind of point to these genes mm-hmm. got turned on in her mm-hmm. susceptibility. Yeah. I can think back on patients too. When I was first learning this, I, my very, very first patient who I recognized this after the fact, I actually sent her an email about it, but she had done remediation for FEMA in during Katrina in New Orleans. Mm. And at the time that I was emailing her, she was in Puerto Rico helping with remediation there. And I was like, well, no wonder she has, and she was cl- a classic case. Like where I, you know, she had come to me and she, you know, was looking for another practitioner who maybe could, you know, shed a little light on this thing. She'd seen a bunch of people and I didn't know enough at the time, but I did reach out to her afterwards, but she had these kind of, all these kind of weird symptoms. Like you know, flashing joint pains. And then she had these weird muscle kind of pains and her brain was, you know, not as sharp as it had been, Like she had actual memory issues. That's in fact, how we first got into, I say we, because my husband has the same qualifications that I do and he does the same thing. And so we got into this because we have a specialty and had been certified in working with cognitive decline. And one of the things that we were trained in by a neurologist who was looking at Alzheimer's and cognition issues from a much bigger picture, like from a more functional medicine picture, where he was seeing that that you can have cognitive decline from several different directions. So you can have like, you know, trauma is a, a known one, like for football players or car accidents, or it could be like vascular because you've got blocked arteries. But one of the categories, toxins. And so we, we would run a big blood test that would look at like, do you have insulin resistance? Cause that was another one, everything. We would look at everything. It's the most, by far the most complete blood test people have ever seen. Like we ran all sorts of interesting things like zinc and copper ratios, things like that, yeah. like a whole bunch of stuff. And, and for, and this is a bizarre thing. We saw a lot of patients, a hundred percent of them had SERS markers, had markers at the blood test to show that the inflammation had caused a bunch of dysregulation. And in these older people, the symptoms were a little different. It was mostly just brain stuff. For younger people, they get more chronic fatigue, they have more hormone problems, but but the older people, it was mostly just brain stuff. Mm. And so it was kind of a, like, so we sort of ended up backing up, backing into the specialty because, you know, I wrote a book about reversing diabetes. So I was pretty sure that the reason people were having all of this problems with their brain was because they had insulin resistance of the brain. And there's, there's research on that and evidence for that, but that's not what showed up in the testing. What showed up in the testing is they had this chronic inflammatory response going on that was causing neuroinflammation. So that's when we realized that we needed to go get specially trained in biotoxin illness. And so we did with the, with the biggest researcher in this, his name is Dr. Shoemaker, Richie Shoemaker. And so he has a really very science-based, very, he's an MD, so it's all very medically oriented. But the helpful thing there is it's not based on like subjective thinking or, you know, it's like based on actual blood tests and actual ranges. And then, you know, you can diagnose what's happening with people. And so that's when we started seeing the the pattern of the symptoms that would happen. I was like, oh my God, how many people had come to us that we didn't recognize had this? Yeah. Right. So now I see it. So sometimes people come to us because let's say somebody comes to me, like I'll think of one of my patients now. So she's overweight and she has fatigue and she's pretty sure that the reason she's got fatigue is because she's overweight. But when I actually started asking her the bigger questions, she also has 
brain fog and she's got joint problems and she's got sleep problems and she's had them for a long time. So, so when I started looking at this, when we tested her for SIRS, like actually her problem is SIRS. And one of the things that can happen with SIRS is get leptin resistance. And so they have a weight problem mm. then as well. So that makes so people, sense actually. That's yeah, cool. It's really interesting because, you know, people who have a weight issue tend to be very hard on themselves and think it's all that. And right. it's, it's not actually that there can be a deeper thing going on. So it's so sometimes people come to me and they have found us through the website where we're listed for working with SIRS. And then other times people come to us because they have a different problem going on. And then it turns out that what's causing that is a deeper, bigger picture of SIRS. Interesting. Yeah. So one thing you, we've started to talk a bit about are what are some of the symptoms and we we've kind of highlighted them, but I want to have a specific conversations for people to have a sense of like, totally what might look for. So what are totally. the like ways you kind of either categorize it or sort of summarize, like these con- constellation of symptoms is when you should start be thinking about pursuing more information for SIRS or these biotoxin illnesses. So I would say if it's, if you have seen a lot of practitioners And a lot of my patients come to me, they've been on a bunch of supplements and they don't really feel better. Like they've tried a whole bunch of different things. Like I had a guy who came and he'd he'd had a year of hives, a year, right? So a year of hives. And then in functional medicine, we're usually thinking like, oh, well, that's probably a digestive thing. So some other practitioner had taken him off of gluten and dairy. And I had been thinking that when he mentioned he was doing that and he'd been off for three months at that point and no change. It's like, well, okay, then, then whatever's being prescribed, that's not making the difference. And that's not it. You don't have to do it longer. Like you should see some change in three months. Yep. And so I, and I remember this patient in particular because I had not seen this sort of weird reaction with hives. And I, it was like a throwaway question. I said, is there any chance that you have any water damage in your house? And he said, oh yeah, absolutely. And I'm like, like, like what? Like, is it water damage or mold? Or he's like, oh, I have a big patch mold in the corner of my laundry room. And it turns out that when he tests that, it's actually like the toxic mold. The one that everybody talks about, Stachybotrys. Uh, yep. And he, yep. And he had a whole, it was a whole thing. So, but he, once he got, he got that handled and we started clearing the toxins from his system, like it cleared up for the first time. So going back to your question, it, what we typically see is people who've seen a lot of practitioners and not gotten better. That's one thing. So if you're not better yet, then you need to look for some other, some other treatment, some other thinking, something outside of that box. The second biggest symptom is fatigue. And it's like this chronic fatigue and, and, you know, you may have been diagnosed, you might not have been. I mean, I have, you know, no shortage of patients who've been to like Cleveland or Mayo and they're like, okay, well, you got chronic fatigue, like we were saying, but no answer to that. So chronic fatigue, brain issues will be like that. So like, like, like we were talking about memory issues, but it's also like brain fog, difficulty concentrating, hard time learning new things, something like that. Like any type of like where your brain is just not functioning. And then like the the third biggest thing is going to be pain issues. Because one of the things that happens is your, your body can't produce the amount of endorphins to manage pain. So joint issues is a really, really big one. And so these, those people in particular have often seen a rheumatologist, but they don't have any rheumatoid arthritis. They don't have any lupus. Like they, the tests don't show anything. Right. And the doctors are like, well, I don't know what it is. It's like, well, okay. So it turns out often it serves, but they, they're, and that's often the confusing thing for people is like, well, if this is an inflammatory condition, how come the tests that my doctors run look normal? And this is where they get stuck. The doctor says you're fine. And clearly you're not. Right. So, so what they're really saying is like, your tests look okay. And we don't know actually what it is. <laughs> so, <clears throat> so the pain issues can be a bunch of different things. Like the woman I was mentioning who had like these flashing muscle pains, but sometimes it's like joint pains, but sometimes the joint pains move. So it can be a whole bunch of different things that can be challenging for people to, you know, like a pain specialist to recognize for people can have migraines, for example, like we had a patient who had migraines that she was seeing a neurologist and he was doing the standard migraine treatment. Like she, but the, but what was interesting is that it wouldn't work. Yep. The migraine stuff wouldn't work. He did a nerve block that didn't work. And it's like, that's when, when you should question your diagnosis of like, maybe this isn't a migraine. It looks like a migraine, but maybe it's not. And her house was, she had a child who was having seizures. They had a second child, a six-year-old who had like joint pain, like an old person. Mm. Um, and it turns out their house had like three separate issues that had three separate mold problems. 
But when it got cleared up, they got better, right? Yeah. So, so let's see, memory issues, hard time finding words in conversations. We have a questionnaire that we, we walk people through. So I'm just taking a look at it while I'm talking to you. So the, there's a question like the unusual skin sensitivity. So ever since that guy with hives, I'm like, okay, any type of like itching, rashes, hives, like that by itself is not enough to diagnose. And this is something I would tell your listeners is each of these things that I mentioned could be existing just by itself. Like you could have a hormone problem for a, for a completely different reason. But once you start having fatigue issues and brain issues and joint issues and like sleep issues yeah. and a whole bunch of different things, now it starts to leave the realm of, of where it's this one system that's struggling a little bit. Now you have what's called a multi-system, multi-symptom problem. And the problem that with people getting it diagnosed is the doc, if the doctor is not trained in that to back up enough to see the whole picture, yeah. then the doctor only sees what's in their lane. And then that's where they never get better. Yep. Right. Or, or, or diagnosed properly. Right. So one of our, our, my husband, our intention, professional intention is to educate as many practitioners as possible on how to recognize, like, like maybe they don't want to treat it, but I want them to recognize it. So they can, so that they can, yeah. I mean, even with like my clients with fibromyalgia, oftentimes, you know, like you said, years to get diagnosed and then it's sort of a dead end diagnosis. Like you have fibro and, and one of my clients came to me on five separate antidepressants or anti-anxiety medications Hmm. because they had seen that some of those sometimes relieve fibromyalgia like pains. Well, her body was already so toxic. And then she got put on more pharmaceutical medications that just increased her toxicity. Her liver was totally overwhelmed. And she spent two years of her life basically checked out. Like she wasn't Mm. home. She doesn't remember it. She was on so many heavy medications. And so one of the first things we were able to do was safely back her out of the pharmaceuticals, you know, and I do that in Mm -hmm. partnership with the prescribing doctors and then we started to peel back these layers. And it was when I started learning about, you know, mold toxins and illnesses and mm-hmm. sears that we started to see this deeper picture or wider picture of what's likely, you know, and yeah, th- there's the presentation of fibromyalgia, but there's this like whole other component and right. she's got IBS and she's got this fluctuating constipation and diarrhea and intolerant to certain foods where her predominant symptom will be this severe, like kind of life altering nausea. And like, those all point to the body's trying to dump toxins. Like when Mm -hmm. we just literally get poisoned by something, we get nauseous and we have diarrhea. (laughs) That's what the body's natural reaction (laughs) to dump toxins are. And so I'm seeing this in her all the time. And I'm like, okay, this is where, and then, you know, and you and I could talk a bit about testing. I did actually run urine panels on her, which still gave us some glimpses in, and now we're widening our scope and our view. Great. So yeah, the, the, it's like, it's like I was saying, like one of the things that we see, like, for example, one of the symptoms that I don't see as commonly, but when somebody has it clearly is very life altering in a negative way is a clotting issue. Mm. So that can look like spontaneous nosebleeds. But what I've noticed is that also for women, it can look like, you know, periods that are like terribly painful, have clots, heavy bleeding. And, you know, yes, a person can have that separately for, you know, they've got high estrogen or they've got something else going on. But if you have that and you have a whole bunch of other things going on, then I start to look at something else. Like I had a patient who she, at the age of 31, started having strokes. Can wow. you imagine that? At the Right. And so she remembers this now. She's, she's 20 years later. She said, you know, I've, I've struggled with this all this time, that there's still this tendency. I haven't had one in a while but I'll have these, these strokes or, or mini strokes and they're recognizable, but nobody knows where they came from. And my brain is like, Oh, clotting problem again. Mm. Cause that can happen with mold. I just don't, it's like the guy with the hives. Like I just, I don't see it a ton, Yep. but in her case, you know, I went through the questionnaire and there's, there's just enough there where I started asking her like, okay, so it started in 2003. So like, what were you doing? Where were you between like 2000 and 2003? just as a kind of guess, like, yep. because the, the whole thing about the, the buildings is that, that, like I said, it's the most common thing I see because we're inside buildings, we're working inside buildings. If your house is fine, maybe it's your work environment. I mean, if the EPA thinks 50% of buildings are moldy, then it's like, wow, okay. <laughs> and that's what they're willing to actually estimate, which is usually on the lower side. 
And like, right. I'm just going to put this in, in this, this moment. It's been interesting to have the conversation around quarantine and isolation for some people, they ended up spending more time in their homes than they usually do. And so the totally. symptoms got worse, worse. because they actually like were out. Most, yeah. 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 And that's when it actually surfaces because they were spending more time at home. Then there probably are even other people where it was coming from their workplaces and they seem to be getting so much better during this time period because they were no longer in that, that building. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. The, uh, I have patients of both of those. I have a patient in California who had noticed that now she was in her house. She's like, I don't feel good. My girls don't feel good. Yeah. And it turns out that she had something that we've seen several times. The California real estate market is like this, where, you know, you want your, the house badly enough that you'll take it with whatever problems it has. So, it, so when the inspector did the report and he said, the bathroom vents into the attic, that they didn't know enough to know that the bathroom should vent to the outside. So yeah. the problem is all that humidity went into the attic and it caused mold. Yeah. And so, and they just didn't know because this is one of the things we're trying to impact over time is like, how can you educate people on mold and water damaged buildings? Like, and why that's dangerous and how to manage that. And so, yeah. So they had to renovate their whole house. Now she's finally coming back to me so I can actually treat them because I, I couldn't really treat the family until they were in a clean environment. Right. So, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's enormously gratifying to be able to recognize what somebody has and to tell them, I know this is a fixable thing. I mean, people start crying because they've, they've suffered for years, even decades. And now there's like, yeah, this is a thing. It's a known thing. And they start to get better. I mean, I had a, you know, I have a woman who's 15 years struggling and she ended up coming to me because her friend is a nutritionist. Her, her friend reached out through a mutual friend and said, any supplements you would recommend that could be helpful for this. But when I listened to the symptoms, even through the, like, what was it? Third degree away, right. like even listening yeah. to the symptoms, I'm like, oh no, I don't think supplements are going to help here. This is definitely a SERS person. And sure enough, when we started treating her, she said, I, I mean, she just couldn't believe like her pain went away, her fatigue, like went away, like so many things started to shift. And then she started sliding backwards because she started going down into, she's in an apartment building and they have a storage unit downstairs. And she mm. said, oh, it's really stinks. And I'm like, yeah, that right there is a bad sign because then she started to track it. And the day after she would go down, like she was getting like decorations for holidays, yep. she would start to get sick. Yep. And she's been sick for a bunch of times. And I, I was wondering like, why are we not getting farther along in this? And it's like, because she would re-expose herself without Still realizing exposures. it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that is often a very challenging part about this. It's like, so I have another client that I'm strongly thinking, and she does have, she's overweight, fibromyalgia, diabetic or pre-diabetic. No, I think she's actually full-blown diabetic. And she has a very stressful work environment. She's actually in healthcare and, you know, mm. often doesn't get lunches. She's got an hour commute on each side. She's just very little space. She lives by herself. She has two dogs. Her favorite thing in the world is to rescue animals that need support, but she just ends up supporting the world around her and doesn't have a lot of time for herself. herself. <laughs> and we've run some tests that is pointing to that she's dealing with an exposure in the home. And so this is something mm. I'm like, literally going to ask you this, like as a practitioner. So here's where I'm stuck. Okay. She's got limited financial resources. She's kind of like right in a balancing act where she is right now. She's owned this home for a long time. I think there's likely a problem there. And at the same time, I'm like, God, am I going to have her spend a whole bunch of money to chase a rabbit hole? If I'm not sure, like I'm as a practitioner, I'm kind of like, where do I stand with this? And how do I like, so I'm kind of like a little bit in this, like, and maybe I got to let this part go, like this ethical moral dilemma of like, how, how, how can I get enough evidence so that I actually can really stand on? Yes. You have to get your house checked out. And yes, if we find anything, it's worth remediating. Cause part of me is like, like, I'm still learning about what results they get mm -hmm. back from the home tests are mm -hmm. like, quote, worth the intensity that it is to remediate mold because remediating mold sometimes can be simple but a lot of times it's like it's a world you open up in terms of having to get your house worked on yeah it depends how how how, how extensive the damage is like when an hvac system is and that's one of the number one places people have trouble the hvac system is involved and what happens is the mold gets spread all through the house yeah. so it's a bigger issue than if it's a spot problem like you're 
like my sister just had this issue actually. So, you know, where she had a leaky sink and it leaked into the room downstairs. If you can catch that early enough, then it hasn't really gone a whole bunch of places or spread too much, but the HVAC system is a thing. Well, so in answer to your question, it's, you know, mostly what I'm trying to do is give people the choices with enough Mm -hmm. information. So for $130, you can run a DNA test for the five most um, toxic molds. And that will give you an idea of if there's something happening in your house. And it's, you know, the mold spores and the fragments of, of broken mold spores float in the air and they, you know, can get taken down to the surface with dust. And so it's a t- test basically with a Swiffer cloth and you wipe dusty surfaces and you send it off to the lab and the lab tests for the DNA of these five toxic molds. The lab tests for a bunch of other things, but if you're going to do like a base test, this yeah. is a good one. And then it gives you an idea of, it doesn't tell you where the problem is, but it does tell you how bad the problem is. So, so <clears throat> that sometimes for people is enough motivation to say, mm-hmm. okay, the next step is, you know, I can see that the house is terrible. The next step is to have an inspector come in and the inspector looks and finds where hopefully where the issue is. So like yeah. my sister had this one thing happen, but it turns out she's got four problems. So she now has a big remediation problem. We're kind, we're kind of breaking the news so we're slowly. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, so c- carefully there. But, you know, so the inspector gives a full report about like, this is what we see. And that's, you know, I, I do fully think that knowledge is power here. So sometimes when yeah. people kind of sit with this long enough, they can figure out what to do. Like, do they want to move someplace else? Do they want to remediate this? Do they want to borrow money to remediate this? Does their insurance cover any of it? Like my sister's insurance, house insurance will cover part of what she's having done. Right. So, so sometimes we just don't, don't know what kind of options are there. And there's not a lot of motivation to go do something because it's all like this amorphous of like, well, maybe my home is not good, but you should actually get your house checked. Right. And I actually recommend that that Swiffer test, because it's super easy. You do it like every year just to make sure that nothing weird is happening. You know, and that's the thing, like I'm like, so, you know, I've lived in mountainous and dry climates most of the last 20 years, which is not, I've discovered mean you don't ever have a mold. Because we all have indoor plumbing. Yep, exactly. Plumbing is the problem. (laughs) You know, and interestingly enough in Arizona, people like, oh, it's Arizona, but like houses flood a lot in Arizona because of the flash flooding and some of the other issues with drainage they have there. So like I've had several people in Scottsdale and throughout Phoenix that are like, you know, well, I've never think of mold. I live in the desert in Arizona. And I'm like, well, but have you ever had water damage to your homes? And they're like, oh yeah, the whole house, the whole basement, we had six inches of water. There was a flood where I'm like, okay, well, that's still a possibility. So when I moved into Mm -hmm. this house in Rochester, New York, it was my real estate agent who actually, because we, the way the market was, we didn't do the classic home inspection. We bought the house Mm -hmm. as, as it was. She actually was the one in the attic said, I think you have a mold problem. She just saw it from looking at houses. So before I ever moved in, which is really great, my dad had an inspector come out and sure enough, the ventilation from the bathrooms had dislodged from the roof and was venting into the attic because it wasn't properly connected out. Oh, I didn't even know you had that. How funny I was mentioning that. (laughs) And I hadn't lived in the house yet, but- we got the whole attic remediated and they, you know, fixed the vents and they did this um, kills type paint and handled it. And it was like 350 bucks, like not a big deal, but it could have, it, it prevented like a massive potential issue. And I have had mold exposure at my parents' house actually several years ago where I stayed in their guest bedroom for two weeks. And I went home with what felt like just this cold, like a cold flu kind of thing. And it was my chiropractor who actually identified that I uh, may be dealing with a mold thing. And we did some relatively basic intervention. So I'm kind of suspicious that either I don't have the genetic susceptibility or the genes aren't turned on because I know I've had a few. And I actually don't think that my chronic fatigue was necessarily these biotoxins, but the fact that you and I had the conversation and you were Mm -hmm. one of those practitioners who said, Sarah, you really could just get better. There's like a real cause for this. I mean, I remember I I burst into tears when you said that to me and then several other factors kind of ended up happening all at once. And I seem to tip the scales on it, but I at least have the awareness now where I'm like, I'm, you know, almost all my physical, I think all my physical symptoms are gone now. And I've been working more on regulating my nervous system. So for me personally, Mm -hmm. the way I've traced it was my personality of being the rescuer and the healer and the doctor when COVID hit 
And then my sister got so sick at the beginning. Then my mom got sick and I was working with family members with COVID early on for almost three months straight. I think just Mm. literally the sheer stress of that tanked my immune system and my Epstein-Barr virus just came out of latency. And then once I got my stress in order and I actually, you know, took some major steps to heal my lifestyle, it seems to no longer be a thing, but I got my eye on mold though. I'm like not taking my eye off of it. It's like, yeah, that's a good good idea. You know? Well, it's funny that you mentioned like, it's funny you mentioned the COVID because the long haul COVID is really similar to, to SIRS. And we're starting to have some of the researchers in this field start running some of the tests and see is is it actually related has something actually shifted yeah because i you know it's the same thing here these people have long haul covid and they don't know why and they're just like well you got this thing it's like well yes okay and then mostly we don't know a lot about covid so we will spend again the next 20 years figuring out this crazy virus but yeah so in the meantime these people suffer quite a bit until unless we can figure out is there some way to treat it and is it possible that it's just like SIRS. Well, and here's so. the thing, and you can correct me, but this is kind of my logic from, you know, I mean, I've just begun, I've taken several seminars on the subject, but like, you know, you have a uh, diplomate certified in the Schumacher method, correct? Mm-hmm. Like you, mm-hmm. like, yeah. So the way I kind of had some of it explained to me is when, when you have these biotoxins, one of the things that they actually do is they start shutting down parts of your immune system. So in like, it might even be a burden issue, or it might actually be that they're actually causing this imbalance in your immune system, that that can actually make you make other things like a virus more likely to not be able to get handled. So it's almost like a Venn diagram. It's not an either or, like they might actually be dealing with long COVID because the body can't clear that infection all the way because they're dealing with these biotoxins. And it's almost like a layered cake. That is actually the thinking. It's like, we're, because we don't have enough uh, data yet to yep. see like do the people who have long haul COVID did they have SIRS potentially before this? Yep, right. That set them up, and yeah, that the whole immune issue is because the the genetic setup that you your system doesn't present the antigen properly for the body to make the proper antibody, and so then it can't clear things, and and that's where the problem is. You have this chronic response occurring where the system is trying, trying, trying to manage it and can't, and so each yep. time it keeps trying it ratches up the inflammation. And then at some point, the inflammation starts turning off your brain's ability, the hypothalamus to talk to your ovaries or testes and your adrenals and your uh, melatonin production goes down. So your sleep has trouble and your endorphin production goes down because you, and then you can't make pain, pain uh, medication, basically, but you know, yeah. to help the pain. So like a whole bunch of things start to break down and the immune system does too. So, you know, some of the other ways that we see it are where there's a, a breakdown in barrier integrity, for example. So if somebody comes to me and they have a history of like, they get, you know, bladder infections all the time, or they, you know, think that there's a gut issue, like there's a gut component to that where it might be leaky gut. Not People usually have like one of these, they don't have all of them. Mm-hmm. But another one is that they will have a sinus susceptibility to a specific form of staph that's super antibiotic resistant. And it doesn't infect the sinuses, it just colonizes it. But it's a, that that is found in water damaged buildings as well. So and that's so rare in the regular population. It's about one point five percent to have that. But if I get a positive test back, it's about eighty percent of the SERS population. Yeah. So like I just had a conversation with a with a person who I said, you know, it, it's a friend of mine. She's trying to figure out like if this is what she has. I'm like, let's just do this nasal swab test because if you have it, it then I probably think you do have SERS. So it can be a kind of easy way to kind of come in and see if that's potentially what's happening. So like for your patient, it could be, you were mentioning about like, I don't know how to kind of move forward with that. It's like, well, you know, you give them a bunch of information and you have it not be overly expensive, right? So you can run a house test. So a house test, like the DNA test is way less expensive than having an inspector come in. You know, doing the nasal swab test is, you know, not a full diagnosis. Like if you want to run a full diagnosis, that costs a bunch of money to run the test, but you could do a nasal swab and, you know, knowing the difference that like 1.5% of the population would come back positive who, who um, right, don't have that SIRS. Don't have SIRS. That, that right. totally is, a, it's a, it's not quite a screening, but it definitely is putting you more but in it's the ballpark. Helpful. Exactly. Yeah. And, the, and the screening questions are actually a big thing. Like this, that questionnaire that I walk people through is considered yeah. 95% positive. 
So if you if you score a certain way in that, that's like, well, probably you have certain and it's true. When I when I try to do that questionnaire on other people who seem kind of complex, but you know, and I'm like, well, let me just rule this out. And I do the questionnaire, like I'll stop halfway through because they don't have they have other stuff, but they don't have that stuff. Right. It's interesting, yeah. 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 And when we ran through that questionnaire, I was kind of borderline. It was like, yeah, I mean, there was a few questions you're like, well, we could tip you in either direction on this one. Right. But it right. definitely, you know, was enough. And like I said, like. I mean, really, I feel like I hit a turning point in July, which is not that many months ago. And so, like I said, I'm continuing to do the things I know to do, but I don't have my eye off of it yet. I'm not like, oh, that's not a thing. I'm like, okay, we're just going to keep being <laughs> responsible all yeah. the way forward, you know? And yeah. and that's really good information because some of the other mold tests that I've seen out there for home tests, you know, are typically running around $450, $500, which you know, at a level, somebody who's been dealing with a health issue for 10 years and they've never gotten answers is like kind of a drop in the bucket. But then it's also a lot of times those people have exhausted so many of their financial resources to get to this point, every dollar counts. And so I really appreciate that, you know, 130 bucks as a initial entry into the conversation, if somebody's, if I'm really, you know, so that's that I can actually see, because you and I had talked about this and I had some other mold tests that I know about, you know, in the Ermi and Hurts Me world. Uh-huh. Which the, it's the, hurt, it, yeah. the Hurts Me test I would yeah. be doing. Yep. Yeah. And, well, and, um, and yeah, that's good. No, no. That, it, it, to be honest, that test, even though it's less expensive, is actually way more accurate than any of the tests that you get at Home Depot or you're, you're having a mold inspector do. So th- that yeah. level of testing is that they're doing is looking to see, so like I was just discussing my sister's house. So I think my sister's house is not gonna come back great. But so the way it, it, the way a regular mold inspector comes in, that's where you're kind of running an expensive test is they'll do an air sample typically. Mm-hmm. So they'll suck some air into a, into a sample basically. And then they put it on a petri dish and see if it grows and see if there's any mold. And that, that air sample test was actually designed to be, depending on the size of the room, five samples to 22 samples, depending mm-hmm. on the size of the room. Because, you know, air gets stuck in corners, for example. The problem is, is that the the average person who's a mold inspector now is typically doing three per residence. So that doesn't help a whole lot. And I saw some interesting demo from somebody who showed that, you know, about, I don't know, maybe, maybe 18 inches away, maybe a foot, he was holding a little smoking thing. And the, the suction for that air sample test mm. didn't even make the, the, the smoking thing move. Like, like it pulls from the very, so you have to then have a very like, you know, in good condition working properly ordered, you know, device to even do the test correctly, which may or may not be be happening. And then the problem is this, the test isn't super sensitive. So somebody Mm. who's sick with SIRS may have had somebody come into their house and check for mold and the, the samples come back fine. And they're like, well, how come I'm not feeling better? And then I'll run a DNA test, which is way more sensitive. Yep. And then it shows, oh, the house isn't okay. It passes an air sample or it Got passes it. like a, a tape lift where they'll put some tape on something and lift up with the, the dust there also. But it doesn't show that it doesn't have the sensitivity. So for example, if you've got a really bad score on an air sample, it definitely means the house is terrible. Yeah. It's definitely mold right. in it. But it doesn't mean you don't have it if the test comes back fine. Yeah. The DNA sample test is actually the most accurate and it's the least expensive. Well, leaving out the inexpensive test from Home Depot, but you know, it's a it's a really accurate test. The only thing it doesn't tell you is where the problem is, but none of the tests tell you where the problem is. That's right. why you have to have an inspector come in and come take in and a actually look. actually look at it. Yeah. 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 That's really helpful. So it, 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 I learned a lot about homes. I'll tell right. you. Like it's more, the, more about construction than you ever thought. Yes. And it's, it's, it is, I can see very, very helpful to know this. Like people, people kind of blow off when they've got, I, I have a SERS patient who, who knows better than this. She had, she said to me, I've got this bulge in my ceiling. And I'm like, what? I was already treating her for SERS at that point. She was not uneducated in this. And then she has this thing, this bulging in the ceiling. It turns out her toilet's been leaking for, I don't know how long. Mm. It causes huge bulge in the sheetrock of the ceiling. And of course they had to remediate the whole thing filled with mold. And, but she let it sit there for months, basically months. So I, you know, people, we would love to be in denial about this, but I I think more knowledge is always better here. So, yeah. We haven't talked about this yet. In some of the seminars that I took, there was actually a heavy focus on some conditions that a lot of people don't tend to think about in this area. And one was mental illness. 
mental, emotional challenges like anxiety, depression, even borderline personality or bipolar disorder. And it's not to say that this is the only cause, but Mm -hmm. if you have somebody who's dealing with that and they have Sears, you can Mm -hmm. end up with a really intense set of symptoms. That's like the, somebody's even borderline having difficulty functioning in their life. And when you can actually work the problem from a physical standpoint, in addition to the mental, emotional side, massive jumps can happen in their ability to manage what they might already be dealing with in terms of a predilection towards anxiety, depression, or certain kinds of mental, emotional Mm -hmm. issues. Have you seen that? Totally. Yes. Yes. Because the current thinking in psychiatry now is that, is that issues of the brain are neuroinflammation. So so I call it like below the neck, above the neck, below the neck, there's all this inflammation going on. And then it causes this problem in the brain. And so I'm always, I mean, there's a question on the questionnaire that's very vague. It says mood swings, but, but it's, people are like, yeah, you know, they, they feel badly. They have irritability and frustration and depression. And, you know, and you could argue that, you know, struggling and feeling badly would give you depression for sure. But it's a bit more than that. But then combined with the rest of the other symptoms, like, yes, absolutely. That would be going on neuroinflammation for sure. And, And yes, you could, you could also like this, I was just talking to a patient and I was saying like, you should also get tested for gluten just because that can also cause neuroinflammation. And there's definitely evidence for that. And if you've got a bunch of other symptoms, then I'm thinking it's, it's also SARS, right? So she could have both things going on, but, but it is very, it, it is super important for me to have people not give up. I don't want them to give up on like that. Oh, I just have this thing. Nobody knows what it is. I'm just like the fibromyalgia people. It's really interesting. Like I, I spoke to a a large audience of that, of people who had that at one point. And it's interesting how many people are resigned to what they have. Like they're so resigned to it that they're not willing to go and try again and potentially um, fail again at figuring out what it is. They just put up with what they have and they compare their drugs. And it was just, it was a very interesting kind of insight into that. Um, population. And I would just really encourage people to kind of like what you were saying, like, we're just idiots because we haven't figured it out. It just means you haven't found the right, the right practitioner, yeah. the right, the right information, the right combination there to, to get it handled. And, and sometimes we're not good advocate for advocates for ourselves. So we don't kind of keep going. And when you have fatigue, it really can be challenging. Yeah. One of the things I want to touch on that this came up for me too, is, is because, you know, from my naturopathic training, I'm a really big proponent of diet changes in order to improve health and well-being. Oh yeah. I remember we had this conversation. Right. And, and like, one of the things I've dealt with is like, I've kind of reached this point where I know more or less like, okay, the fruit and vegetables and healthy grains and whatnot, but like, I'll make significant diet changes and my body doesn't move a meter, like nothing happens. And that was one of the things that was a real light bulb moment for me when talking to you was like, you'll actually see that there are people where they have, you know, from my naturopathic training, I have someone who comes in with brain fog and with fatigue and with joint pain, and I change their diet. My expectation is, is we're going to see some vast improvements, but Mm -hmm. there are some people where not not an appreciable amount is happening. Now, maybe just getting them off the junk food or getting them into a whole foods based diet is overall going to be helpful for their body to heal, but it's not moving the meter in any major way in yeah, terms of exactly their actual well-being. Yeah, I remember how, how relieved you were when I wasn't going to put you on a cleanse or this and that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because, yeah. Because it's, it's um, you know, I have a master's in nutrition. So like, I, you know, can, can look, I can, I don't anymore, but I can look at everything through a nutrition uh, like lens. But the thing that I see with SIRS people is if you eat badly, it p- probably will make you feel worse, but eating better doesn't make this better. Yeah. You know, so I see people come, some people come with, uh, they're on a lot of supplements because I've seen a lot of practitioners and I find those people are typically doing a little bit better. Like they're not quite as deep in the hole as yep. other people, but it's not fixing the problem. And no. that's really the thing I want your listeners to, to realize. Like there is, if you feel that badly and like you're taking stuff and it's not helping then like, yeah, you might want to investigate some other things because, yeah. because absolutely this is possible. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, what about the other side of the coin of mold in food? Cause that's been another ah, big topic yes. of like, like <laughs> there's literally molds we get exposed to because of wheat. And some people, they say, oh, it's gluten, but we actually see that. I mean, and then I'm going to just highlight 
you know, Dave Osprey and Bulletproof, that's mm-hmm. the cornerstone mm-hmm. of where his whole health problems, he actually had a mold problem. He uncovered it. He actually got himself an EKG and would run EKGs on him on his own brain during the day. And when he'd eat something, he'd see how his brain patterns changed. And he stopped eating those foods based on how they impacted him. And at a level, mm-hmm. I love the degree of research that went into it of like moldy coffee and moldy chocolate and moldy grains and all these things. But then another part of me is like, really? Like, is that what this is about? Like, really? We, cause I mean, it's tough. Like, so where do I go with my clients to be like, nope, you can't eat any of these foods because you might have mold toxicity exposure. Like how important so do you see? So this is, there are actually two different things going on here. So mold from a water damaged building is you don't have mold in your system. What you have is the toxins from mold. And it's a completely different thing. It's an immune reaction that's causing this inflammatory condition. So there's no mold in you. So the urinary mycotoxin tests that some people run, which are really expensive, only point to people eating mold. And people have eaten mold since the beginning of time. Like it's in all, you know, it's in a ton of food. Anytime you've had blue cheese, you've had mold. Like you, I mean, God knows I'm certainly guilty of picking around the bad raspberries. Yeah, because I want I want the good raspberries, but you know that's eating mold because I can't say that those are clean. Yeah, so it ha- it happens for everybody. But one of the things that that we have definitely seen is that putting people on a no mold diet, you know, because uh, I had somebody who do this did this for me as a practitioner years ago, and they're like, oh, don't eat mushrooms, don't do this, don't do that. Like none of that helps. <laughs> to be honest, none of that helps. And if somebody does a urinary mycotoxin test, 99% of the time, there's a research paper that went into this actually, between 80 and 99% of the time, those people all have positives, which means the majority of people who take that test, not surprisingly, eat food with mold. Yep. So the problem is they take those urinary mycotoxin tests and then they say, I've got mold. I'm like, well, not necessarily. Mm. You're eating things that have mold. You're not necessarily in a water damaged building. You don't have SIRS necessarily. We could test for SIRS. Right. But it's not a certainty just because you ate food with mold in it. They're, so they're two completely separate things. And, you know, I know Dave Asprey is, has done a lot in, in wanting to work with mold. So I, I can appreciate everything that Dave has done in terms of educating people about this. I, you know, I, I always kind of warn people like there's a, you know, people get into their little niches, you yeah. know, like there's a niche about lectins and you know, there's this niche about mold and food. And maybe for some people that makes a difference because they ate badly or they had overexposure to that. But it's not, I, I don't know. I mean, we're just taking Dave's words basically that he's better. We don't know this for a fact. Right. Right. So I'm just saying you might want to take things with a little bit of a grain of of grain of potassium is what my nutrition professor there used to go. say. He's like, don't take it with a grain of salt, take it with a grain of potassium. He was a little yes, out there, okay, Dr. Good. Mars, but he was really awesome about it. <laughs> Just, I, I wouldn't believe everything everybody says. Right. I mean, and mostly what I would say is you want to make sure that there's some actual evidence for this. Like, and by evidence, I don't mean like an article that's an opinion article. I mean, like yeah. actual, like a research paper, right? So there aren't any. The thing with urinary mycotoxin tests is there's actually a page on the Centers for Disease Control website, the CDC website, talking about the inaccuracy of those tests and how they can't be used to diagnose anything. Mm. There's a whole page for that. Yeah. So, so those tests are not, not what I would ever, I never run them because they're really technically they're a waste of time. They simply tell me somebody's been eating food with mold, but everybody does. So that's why so many people come back with positives. So I do have one question because I have run not a ton of them, but a decent amount of them. There is a Veruca A on there that's under the stackies. Like there's a couple. The batteries. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if that does come back positive in a, in a urinary, are, are then are you like, oh yeah, we should definitely investigate water damage building. Yeah. I mean, I, I might then, you know, have a, have a little bit of a longer conversation on that. Like do there, you know, and, and so it's funny when I ask the questions about a house, I have to say to people, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to ask you some questions now. I'm going to, I know that the initial response you're going to say is no. So I'm just going to have you pause for a second. Let me kind of go through the questions. So I start out and I say, just like that, I say, okay, so I'm going to ask you that if, if you have ever lived in a water damaged building and by, and I go right into the next sentence. And by that, I mean, like anytime you might have had a roof leak, your hot water here broke, you had an overflowing tub, a leaking toilet, 
like, and I kind of run through some options and, yeah. you know, and people will pause me because like, yep, totally. Or like, nope, nope, keep going. And then I'll be like, oh, you know, you had a window that leaked or, I mean, I had a woman who told me that the, her water softener for her house, like she opened up the little closet door for that. And I'll never forget it. She said, and the whole inside was furry. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Uh-huh, right. Uh-huh. And then the inspector came. The inspector, I just haven't remembered her. She was one of my first patients. And then the inspector came and it turns out that the windows that were on either side of her bed in her bedroom had not been properly flashed. That, that was a whole term I had to learn too, but you know, properly uh, put in basically. And so she'd had water on the inside next to her bed on the sheetrock. Like the, the inspector who I knew sent me the report and it was 99% moist, that much mm-hmm. moisture in that sheetrock. So she had several problems actually when the inspector came. So, so, so I, I, I see what you're saying though. Like, okay, maybe that test shows something, but then I, I will actually ask, is there any, anything that you remember? Right. And then people will be like, oh yeah, that. And then I'll say like, okay, maybe there is some evidence to kind of move forward. But I, you know, when I'm diagnosing it, I'm not using a test like that. I'm, I'm going through the questionnaire, which is yeah. Like I said, considered 95% accurate. And that's a much um, easier I, way to start anyways. It yeah. is. And yeah. much, much less expensive. It's like, you know, what I do in the first visit when I'm talking to somebody who I think has this. Yeah. Right. I run through the questionnaire. So, so yeah, I, I you know, I, there's just not enough evidence for me to use that test and too many false positives. Totally got that. Yeah. And mostly what I've found is a lot of kind of inconclusiveness is like yeah, that, for a lot of money that's really right? annoying yeah, <laughs> yeah yeah totally so then here's and, and i know we're, we're coming up about where i like to kind of complete the conversation but i'm like i have more questions um, <laughs> go ahead we're all good <laughs> uh, which is so good and so going to okay in water damaged buildings in saying there's a leak or something happening in the house another thing that i've heard is like oh well you can have mold in your house and it's not a big deal it only matters if it's x mold how do you uh, feel about that? But nope. So let me let me give you a little background on this. So mold can grow in your house within 48 hours. So if you've had water in on on food for mold, it's reasonable to assume that there's um, some mold. Now this all started back in the 70s when there was a and actually a little bit before that they used to use this fungicide in farming called Benamil. And it was the mold, not surprisingly, became resistant to it. So they stopped using it for farming, but they started putting it into paint. And what happened is into house paint. And so when people, when it was being used, then what happened is you got this resistance form of toxic molds. And if, so if you think back, like we had never really heard of toxic mold before this, yeah. we started hearing about this in the nineties, which was about the amount of time it took for this mold to get resistance. So now what we have are these resistant molds that, that, can be found out in nature, but are found in high concentrations in places that have food for mold. And sheetrock is one of the best ones. Sheetrock is like the best food ever for mold. So sheetrock and wood of any kind like that. So the, I'm pausing because I'm trying to remember where we are in the conversation. I was asking about the different types of mold in houses because some people are like, oh, only certain molds count as being an issue for your health. Well, it's, so it has to do also with the concentration. Okay. So any, you, so, I mean, like you can step outside and if there's a plant that's of high concentration, you're going to feel terrible, but then you go by and it's better, right? So it's, it depends on the concentration. It's just that the ones that have a, an impact on human health actually have a bunch of research around that. So there's a, there's a lot of evidence for this. They started talking about sick building syndrome in the eighties. Yep. And the very first incidence of this was in the, in the mid eighties, where they started noticing that people in, in a place in, in Nevada, it was a place called Incline Village, uh, a whole bunch of people got, and they could, and then of course, because we knew nothing about it, we made fun about it. We called it yuppie flu. And it was a disease of depressed women, menopausal women. Like, yeah, okay, because that's what they do. But it turns out that those people all ended up getting chronic fatigue from water damaged buildings. So I I would say that that's not accurate. It has to do with the concentration Mm -hmm. of it. And any concentration could be problematic, but but in a house, typically there are, and and in a a house that has water damage, we talk about mold. I speak about mold because that's the thing that most people are like, oh yeah, that makes sense. But there are actually about 30 different compounds and growths of things. Like there's bacteria that cause toxins. There are lipopolysaccharides, which absolutely cause inflammation. They use them in research because they're so... uh, reliable for causing inflammation. There's a whole bunch of different things in water damaged buildings besides molds. Like when I run that kind of five toxic molds test, 
there's there's bigger tests that run for more. And again, what we're looking for is concentration. So we're looking for a score on that test that shows that there's a concentration that can impact human health. So I, I would have to disagree with that statement. It just depends right. on the concentration. That makes sense. And and you, and you cannot have the genetic susceptibility to still get sick. Like we had a patient who, you know, we live in uh, Santa Fe and there's a, there's a, you know, everybody has those flat roofs. They're, they're relatively flat. There's actually a slight slant to them. The daughter who's pretty young, she was having seizures. And it turns out that in these flat roofs, there's actually a, a little bit of ventilation that like a little vent that has to be put into the roof, not from down in the house, but from when the moisture from people rises up through the ceiling so that the ceiling, the outside, you know, above the sheetrock could vent to the outside. And this house had been built without it. And they'd lived in it for 12 years and all this time, mold was growing in it. And it was so concentrated that when the contractor took it to the dump, the contractor had a seizure as well. Oh my gosh. Uh-huh. Like, and he, he wasn't, sick, but we see this interestingly in yeah. some of the mold inspectors is they end up getting SIRS too, because they didn't know about it. So they're going and doing inspections without wearing masks and, you know, digging around and stuff. And, you know, anybody can get sick. It, it just depends again on the concentration. So, you know, it's just people who have SIRS can't ever clear it if, once they leave the environment. And that's kind of an important thing. People will say, oh, I'm not in a place now that has mold and we test and the house is fine but they're surprised that they're still sick. I'm like, well, you just brought your problem with you to your current clean house. You were sick in the past. And so we you know, can find out where that is. You know, and so, that's something too, that I like, I've kind of shifted my thinking about it. Cause I, I don't know, somehow originally it was like, well, mold, oh, candida, oh, fungus, oh, bacterial infections. Like the infection mm-hmm. is in the body. And it's like, no, it's mm-hmm. actually a toxin that's in the body. Right. And I think about it more like heavy metals where there may have been Mm -hmm. a previous exposure, but if your body could never clear it, you're just carrying it around until we actually do the work that allows the body to be able to let it go. And that's been a really in useful shift for me in my paradigm about how I even, you know, treat this and where I'm coming from with it. Yeah. Well, and and then the the thing about the house, the question you were asking before about like, you know, getting sick in the house that that whatever the other person was asking that question is the you know, it can be a very welcome thing to hear somebody say like, oh, I can spray something on this mold and it will kill it and you'll be fine. That That's actually one of the worst things you can possibly do. Mm. The EPA says, and it, this, is the, this is the rules when you have mold, is you have to physically remove the mold. You have to remove things that have mold growing on them. So you have to take the sheetrock out and you have to take the wood out and you have to take it out. We call it catch and release. Like you want to take it outside of the house. That's why you pay remediators versus your brother-in-law who's a contractor because a remediator makes like a clean room, puts bags it, wipes it off, make sure it doesn't track it to the whole house like that. So that there's a reason why remediators aren't licensed typically because it's a complex thing to do and they have to retest afterwards and all that. But when you kill mold, what happens is it's kind of like, you know, if you've ever had a house plant and you forgot about it and didn't water it and the leaves got all brown and cracked and you know fall into pieces the same thing happens in mold when you kill it it dries up it loses its water source let's say you fix the roof leak it dries up um, or any however way you kill it so in that case you don't give it any more water so it doesn't grow but if you spray something on it same thing the spores can break an individual spore can break into somewhere between 250 and 400 pieces like fungal fragments and those fungal fragments actually go deeper into the lungs more, much more so than spores. Like I have a really interesting study that shows like the majority of spores stay in the throat, but the fungal fragments go deep into the lungs and they start to, to cause this immune reaction. So, so killing the mold, <laughs> like I said, I did this when I was like 22 in college. I was like, oh, I just sprayed something on the wall. Like that's totally not the thing to do. Mm. It's a, you right. want to that's find... what we did in my attic. Yay. I know, I'm sorry. <laughs> I know when you said that. I'm like, I'm like okay, I'm going to be retesting. We're going to take a look at this. Yeah, I got it. <laughs> so the, the kind of the thing to do is the very, very first thing is you have to identify where the water is coming from. You got to yeah. fix that. If you don't fix that, the whole thing is what's the point, right? So right. You, you, you deal with that first. Then you remove the actual particles that have the mold on them. So you do that remediation. The third thing is then people say, well, what about the stuff that's in the air? Like, well, yeah, so there's a valid question there. So you can, there are foggers that were, that don't kill the mold, but they weigh the mold down so it falls to a surface. 
and then you wipe the surfaces down. Again, another form of catch and release. So you put it on, you know, you clean it up with a microfiber cloth and you throw that microfiber cloth in a pile and then you take the next one. And you use it like this, this uh, pretty easy solution that has 10% alcohol in it because the mold is a little bit sticky. So you just wipe the surfaces down. And then the last thing is to use an air filter and, you know, like a good HEPA air filter. And so one of the issues, of course, people they just think that they should just use an air filter. And of course that doesn't solve the problem because they may not have identified the water leak even in the beginning. Yep. Yep. Oh man. Well, yeah. So it's, a, it's a lot of stuff and it's, yeah. I'm, I'm, you know, constantly increasing my knowledge about it and learning all these different ways that it manifests and learning stuff about houses and stuff like that. But I am really, really committed that people are able to recognize, start to recognize it in themselves, start to make it like possible and hopeful that they actually get better. So I'm going to give you some resources that if you have any of your listeners who want to reach out to, I have a PDF, for example, that goes into gory detail about like everything that I talked about here on the on the yep. podcast and I can, uh, it's called Moldy to Healthy. So I can uh, have you give that to people if you want. And then also they can check out our website because we do that. And if somebody knows they have SIRS, like, of course I'll, I'll, you know, run them through the questionnaire and we can have a, a visit talking about that. Absolutely. And there's we'll definitely have, hope. Yeah, no. And that's what, I mean, God, that's what's so empowering about this. And, and I, is that component of like, you're not crazy. You're not making it up. You're not nuts. There's actually a real thing to be able to pursue take action in and get better, like have your body yeah. recover. And yeah. yeah, we'll make sure that there are resources posted in the show notes, um, which will be on my website for the podcast specifically. And also, you know, your resources. And like, if you want to, yeah. And if you want to order the test, I will, that's actually in the PDF as well. The name of the lab that we recommend. Awesome. There are a couple of labs. This one is, we really like this lab. They seem to do great. And the, the lab is there, but I'll also give you the name separately in which test I would order Yeah. so that people can, can go on their website and order it themselves. It's great. Awesome. Marlene. Ah, oh, this is so fantastic. I appreciate <laughs> your knowledge and your 20 years and all the research that you and your husband have done in order to get to this point, because it, even once I started to step into the world and I even remember meeting other naturopathic practitioners are like, Oh my God, you treat mold. You're willing to do that. Like, good. I'm sending you everybody because I it's crazy and I don't know what to do with it. And it's a complex world. And you bring a yeah. level of clarity <laughs> and certainty to the conversation that is unusual, even when I've learned from other physicians. So I really appreciate well, that you. a lot. Yeah. I, a lot. I appreciate that. I am, I am determined and committed to educate practitioners to, so that they can start recognize it, but also to help whoever comes to us because yeah. so many people have lost so much hope and, and it's, it is, it is fixable. So I, I appreciate your, the opportunity to talk to your listeners and give some of them some hope and, and maybe for the ones that don't have that, that they start to recognize that they know people who have, yes. oh yeah, my yeah. You know, sister has chronic fatigue or whatever. So they start to recognize it too. So yeah. thank you Getting so much. Getting it out into the, into the conversations for sure. Until we get to do this again, I appreciate you so much. Oh, you're so welcome. It's really great to talk to you, Sarah, again. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you to today's guest, Dr. Marlene Merritt, for her wisdom and power. For all the resources of today's show, visit sarahmarshallnd.com backslash podcast. Special thanks to our music composer, Roddy Nickpour, and our editor, Kendra Vicken. And as always, thank you for being here. We'll see you next time.